We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throne tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey all, I'm your host, Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide to work, play, and life. This is the second half of our conversation on the four essential beats of narrative, namely the sad, funny, beautiful, and weird. They're not the only beats that matter, of course, but they often give direction, flow, or a shape to the moments that hold us captive or impact us the greatest. And though we may start with a fairly deep exploration of one of our favorite storytellers, Hayao Miyazaki, the foundational tropes, motifs, and narrative elements he plays with, the loss of innocence or exuberant certainty, and the maturity gained, and the presence of challenges we must face, are there to some extent in all of the works from fantastic to horror to literary classic that we'll discuss today. As for the ending, well, we had to leave a little time yet to play, so join us as we see what happens when we have only a title, Death Leaves Us Stranded and a premise as strange. We hope you enjoy. Stephen, you had a trio of films that I'm also a fan of, but you are probably outstripping me by far in that regard. And you brought up some interesting points regarding them as well as how they play into the beats. Do you want to talk about Miyazaki? Yeah, so the three films I'm thinking of specifically here and Obviously, I think a lot of Miyazaki films fall into this, not just the three I'm going to talk about. So you could tell the same story for uh, Princess Mononoke, or I'm sure my neighbor Totoro has the same sort of story to be told to it. But the three I'm thinking about here are um, Castle in the Sky, uh, which I think is called Laputa in Japanese, um, Spirited Away, and Howl's Moving Castle. And I I think it's really interesting because we were talking before, uh, I think uh, Up gives us an example of something that ends in sadness and moves to beautiful. So these three movies, they they use the weird as a sort of backdrop for the beautiful. So if we think of uh, Howl's Living Castle, for example, we exist in a world where you know we have these all these sort of fantastical things happening. So you have a castle that can walk around. You have all these magicians who can turn into beasts. You have the main character very early on being cursed uh, with a particular kind of curse. That an undefined into, curse, too. An That's, undefined yeah. curse that turns her into an old woman, but you're pretty dang sure the only reason it turns her into an old woman is because that's her own self-image to start the movie, that she thinks of herself as this very old, ugly woman, and so that's how it reflects onto her. She has a um, magnificent line when she looks into the mirror after her initial freak out of, well, at least the clothes feel right now, or at least they fit properly. Yeah, exactly. And and what's interesting about that movie is it uses the it uses the weird as a sort of backdrop for what turns into a very very beautiful uh, story. As you know, she's learning to discover her own beauty, and obviously, I don't mean that. I don't mean that outwardly. I mean that very much inwardly. Uh, to the end, where she talks about her hair, and she's a very overt outward metaphor, but really, it's a metaphor for you know, so inside her. Do you, but do she you talks want to... about how beautiful her hair is and how she thinks it's really nice because 
And so it, it's sort of finding yourself in this world of weirdness. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to, for the five audience members who have never seen these films. What which, is wrong with you people? Do you want to just give a quick summary to Hal, since we're talking about that now, and then we'll dive into Spirited Away and Laputa? Sure. So uh, Hal's Living Castle is this movie about uh, this one girl. Uh, I've Sophie. Life. Sophie, thank you. Who is cursed by a witch, who's cursed by a witch of the wild at the very beginning to turn into an old woman. And beforehand, she had met this one wizard named Hal, who's a very young... Uh, not very young. He's actually, you know, he's his, he's like in his twenties. Uh, but he acts a very young. He so and he sold his soul to his demon uh, very early on, which is what allows him to have this gigantic moving castle. And pretty much the whole movie is this sort of movie where these two countries are at war, and the country that they're part of is trying to get Hal to sign up for the war. That's the important thing. And really, the best way of putting it is is the story of Hal resisting it and Sophie sort of learning to break her own curse and also Hal's curse over the course of the movie. I can give this that kind of summary. Okay. The reason I, I found Miyazaki tends to resonate in a topic like this is that he always starts with the character and their nature and dives into the story very quickly. Yes. You know, Sophie is this quiet, reserved individual in the opening scenes in a hat shop as she's sewing and doesn't ask to be taken. You know, when she's invited to go out, doesn't. There's some background chatter about the war going on, a parade, and very quickly, you discover that wizards are involved to create fantastical devices and fight. Yeah. And there's an offhanded comment thrown out that you don't want to be found by Hal because he'll eat your heart. Yeah. Well, well uh, so what's interesting about... Offhandedly, as if that's just a thing wizards do. Well, what's interesting about, like, Miyazaki movies is, like, the sadness is, is like, often associated with parental figures. But it's, it's, a, it's a blinking, you'll miss it kind of sadness, right? So one of the most defining moments in the, scene, in the movie is, so she's living with her mother who constantly goes away on foreign escapades. She comes back to her hometown and her mother comes in and she's so upset because she hasn't seen Sophie, right? And it turns out as, as her mother's leaving that she actually planted a spy, some sort of, she actually betrayed Sophie uh, and is going off to, to live her frivolous lifestyle. Uh, and that's where they leave her mother for the rest of the movie, that her mother came back only to betray her. And it's a very scene of like blinking, you'll miss it, betrayal and awfulness. Which is ironic in this sense, because Sophie's maturation in the story is not so much about her learning how to find adventure and be young again, but how to care for things and go off on her own will. And yeah. I often find that Miyazaki films the really play up the strangeness of the world, and they're very often coming-of-age stories, and I think the point is... You're, the world's not going to make sense, and you have to grow up and live in it anyway. And you have to learn to deal with the fact that it doesn't make sense and that people aren't going to play by the rules that you expect them to, that you're told they're going to, or that you or that you want them to. And you have to find your way anyway. Spirited Away is a great example of that. I mean, yes. Hal's is too to wrap up on there. I think Sophie's first encounter after becoming an old woman and realizing, oh, I can't be who I am anymore after Runaway. Because she's still young. She's still, I think, a teenager. She yes. thinks of herself as old, and she acts like she's young. So she runs away, and the first thing she encounters is a stick she pulls out of a bush, and it's a giant scarecrow with a turnip for a head. Yep. Who proceeds to bounce off and find her cane, catch her shawl, and then find her place to live, Hal's Castle. This is all not sane in our world, but because wizards and everything else, she just brushes it off of, I've had enough of witches and wizards, go away, leave me alone. There is so much magic around her, but none of that is what tells the story. And for me, what I found as the most magical scene, or one of the two, I'd say, Hal is vain. Anybody who sells their heart to a demon to live, be young forever is a vain human being. 
Sophie, in cleaning up the house as or castle as his cleaning lady, messes with the bathroom full of magical beautification potions, and then goes about her business buying food and groceries with Hal's apprentice, who's a kid. When they get back to the house, Hal is running naked but for a towel through the house, screaming, What have you done? I told you to leave everything alone and not overdo it. And in the course of the next minute, he proceeds to scream out at the top of his lungs as his hair turned from his hair, which had been gold, I suppose, turns from that to a ridiculous carrot and eventually black. That if I can't be beautiful, you know, I'm forgetting the line, but it's something effective. I, I, give I, up. I see no point in living if I can't, I can't be beautiful. beautiful. And from there, immediately horrifying shadows emerge out of the castle. The entire building starts to warp. And when Sophie goes to pat him on the back, his body is turning into sludge. I think one of my favorite things about that scene is it encapsulates the sadness and the, and the sadness at the same time as Sophie runs out of uh, Sophie yells at him because it's the dichotomy between the two. Sophie yells at him saying, "You're you're so vain. I've never been beautiful, and I've never had the meltdown you're having." She runs out because I mean that's her worst fear, right? Yes. And so Hal is being this really vain, stupid. Oh my gosh, my hair is a different color, so therefore I can't be beautiful. He's a and, child. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing is, when Sophie runs out into the rain and cries, the movie does this throughout, but you see her younger, not fully young again. But every time she goes back to being closer to who she truly is, the curse changes who we see on the outside. For instance, when Hal finds her lying asleep one night, there is no curse at all, at least nothing resembling an old woman there. So she wakes up the next morning. But the scene following this, where Sophie goes to to comfort him in his room, she walks into his room as an old lady with a cup of milk and tries to offer it, him, it to him. And he's lying in this room that is smothered in wards and toys and specifically multicolored paraphernalia with two stuffed animals on his blanket. And this is where you discover not the character Christian Bale is voicing as the magical wizard of wonder who eats woman's hearts, but the child who hides, hides behind all of that power. And Sophie discovers that vulnerability. The ending of the story, not to fully give it away, but it's important. She does recover his heart, and when she picks it up, she says, I think something along the lines of, he feels so light and fluttering. And I forget if she says it or Calcifer does. It's probably Calcifer, who's voiced by Billy Crystal in the English version. Of course it does. It's still a child's. When she gives it back to him, he says, I feel so heavy now. I don't know what this is like. Why do I feel so bad? One thing I should add before we move on to the next is that if you're going to watch Hal's, Hal's is one of the few anime I will ever say this about, and this is pretty much heresy, the English voice acting might be better than the Japanese dub. Lauren uh, Bacall, Blythe Danner, Christian Bale, I'm blanking yeah. out on something. It's a phenomenal cast. It's, it's great. That sounds amazing. Spirited Away, I think, encapsulates a similar one. It's a child who, in classic Japanese mythology, ends up being taken in by spirits and taught lessons on how to be an adult. But there's always this question left of whether she even understands what's happened after it ends or yeah. whether the lesson is truly learned. Well, what's interesting about Spirited Away is, so Howl's moves on a, you know, Howl's ends on a beautiful note. I won't say what it is, but Spirited Away ends on a bittersweet, almost sad note, right? Yeah. So she's learning, she, she, she's learning all these things, you know, the weird happens. If you don't know, basically what happens is the reason she's taken in by spirits is because her parents are turned into pigs for being <laughs> gluttons and taking food. So she's learning all these lessons and she's trying to get her parents back. And it ends with her having this realization with the uh, other main character, whose name is Hanyu, I believe. And then she leaves and she's done with the spirit worlds and she goes back to the human worlds. And it's this very sad note of all of these things that she's learned and all of these experiences she's had. 
are going to probably be remembered as child's memories. Good. I actually have to say, I took kind of a different interpretation of the ending. Okay. Which is that um, early on, she was, she very much thought of herself as a child and looked at her uh, parents the way uh, uh, children do. Uh, there was a certain level of infallibility, even when she was irritated with them. And that part of the bittersweetness of the end is having gone through these trials and tribulations that forced her to grow up. She can't look at her parents the same way anymore. She sees their flaws. She sees them not actually living up to yeah. adulthood with every step. And it's it's a door that once you've passed, you can't go back. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. Uh, what is it? The the French have a line about uh, adult um, adolescence. Adolescence begins when you realize that your parents are fallible, and it ends when you forgive them for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the basic beginning and ending of their journey in the spirit world is that as a child, she fell into a river trying to save her shoe, and somehow was carried back to the shore. Now she doesn't remember this. She was probably four or five at most. When she enters the spirit world the second time, discovers her parents have turned into pigs, she flees because this is horrifying and this isn't real. So I think she declares this has to be a dream. Eventually, she discovers a bathhouse and while gawking at everything around her is picked up by a young man, roughly her same age, and he tells her he has to take her out of this now. Or some Haku, I think his name is. Haku, thank you. Yeah, that's right. What you discover over the course of the story is that he is the spirit of the river that saved her. He knows who she is, but he has forgotten his own name and hopes that she can find his in order to free him. She has to, to save her parents, sell herself to the witch who runs the bathhouse, and live a life of menial labor and hard lessons. Just a number of adult lessons as a child, which are difficult. One of the biggest ones, and uh, one of the ones that doesn't get a lot of fanfare, is uh, sometimes you can't outthink, you can't outdo the situation. The solution is to roll up your sleeves and get to work. And that is actually a pretty... Significant moment, uh, the, the understated yeah. but significant. Well, there's a lot of understated in it where you see these subtle changes in character. And I think that's why when it ends with her finally remembering who Haku is and saying, you're the Kohaku River, this is who you are, you saved me, and him thanking her, helping her save her parents and taking her back home. They have to say goodbye because the river is filled. There is no place for him to return. And she asks, will we see each other again? He says, of course, yes, or sometime." And tells her not to look through the tunnel before, or not to look back before she passes through the tunnel, which is a very, very uh, Orpheus. Yes, uh, of classic mythological Japanese mythology. The two Izanami and Izanagi traveling back from the underworld don't look back to see what your wife has become. There's this deep, if you look, you can't ever leave, or if you look, well, that's like Sodom and Gomorrah, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty resonant idea actually so she wanders through the tunnel goes with her parents and finally crossing the other side sees things are slightly changed the time has passed and looks back and you're not i've heard arguments both ways depending on which version or language you watch rather certain whether she remembers all of it or remembers the essential things in the english she is asked by her parents if she's going to be okay and she says i think so at her new school in the japanese there is just the music and they fight in the car and drive off i I don't know that. So that movie specifically, the ending, uh, maybe it's supposed to, but the, of all Miyazaki movies, when I think of everyone I've seen, that ending specifically makes me sad that there's something that's been lost yes. and it's not coming back. That's childhood. Exactly. Yeah. That is the ending of it in small beats. Right. That's true. 
But it is interesting that Miyazaki should portray other movies where that is not the ending. Like, I think there's something very happy about moving on in a sense, right? Like, I think Hal shows the sort of moving on from childhood in a very happy manner. I think Laputa is another example where, you know, the main, so to give you, to move on to Laputa or Castle in the Sky, Castle in the Sky is this um, story. This has been the Miyazaki hour. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm going to keep talking about this until I can't talk about it anymore. Tom, you're uh, going to have to go and gag your brother. So, and this is just to include the trade. <laughs> it's not going to Missouri now. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know when you're there. But just to, just to point it out, like Castle in the Sky is a movie about children moving on to adolescence. Yes. And in that particular movie, the moving on to adolescence to becoming your own adult is seen as a good thing. It's seen as a heroic thing, right? So the main characters are seen in a very heroic light because they overcome the very chi- their very childish natures. Well, keeping on certain aspects of childhood, they overcome their childish natures and they become adolescents. They start going on the path to adulthood. So I don't think we necessarily have to see moving on from childhood as a necessarily bittersweet thing. And so it's very interesting that Miyazaki should choose to view this movie in a very sad way, whereas other movies see it as a very positive. Done. I'm done. Finish. Time. No, it was. It's. We weren't going to cut you off because we knew you were going to reach a good point. But I do. I do think it. It leads us to the question of what is it like in a piece of work and a piece of narrative to dwell on the beats, to enhance or truly focus on that as a finality or even as a point where you pause and let the audience breathe and truly drink it in. Dave, you had a piece from Silver Linings Playbook you wanted to bring up, right? Um. Yeah. It's. It's another movie where the 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 beats go back and forth. Uh, it is a movie about struggling with mental illness, and uh, so it it has to go back and forth. For the entire movie is strange because mental illness just manifests in strange ways. We part of the, the the problem with dealing with it is we don't quite know how to rationalize it. Probably because you can't rationalize it by definition. The So it goes back and forth between these moments of beauty and these moments of sadness and these moments that are just genuinely funny, all caused by this fundamental problem. Um, but I remember one moment in particular uh, is this, going, going back to the idea of silence, it's this sad and triumphant moment. So I guess sad and beautiful moment at the same time. Sad because he's just hurt someone he cares about a lot. And beautiful because it's one of the big steps forward he makes in in dealing with his problem he realizes that at least for him he can't deal with this without help he 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 has to accept that he has a problem which until that point in the movie he had barely faced at all and uh it's this moment this very quiet moment in the kitchen where he finally starts taking his medication and he's sitting there staring at the pill and finally uh, and finally swallows it because there's because as bad as that is, as much as he hates what uh, the pill does to him, it's uh, he can't face hurting a family member again. He's found something worse. He's found something worse. He's he's realized there is a problem to be faced. Is that sad and beautiful together? It is. I would say so. I see sad and beautiful together are often triumphant or bittersweet, depending on the order they happen in and hmm. the moment. Uh, actually, they're usually both bittersweet triumph. You have to take your victory where you can get it. And I find those victories happen a lot more often than the very clear cut, hey, we saved the day. Because sometimes it's 
Well, I guess, I guess the real question is, what do we really care about when we're watching stuff? And a lot of times, we're not as, like, it's fun to see, oh, victory over the force of evil, but we're really looking to see how the characters grow. And that, that sadness paired with beauty is one of those moments of growth. It's the things couldn't remain the same. I have to change to meet them. Beauty, I find, as a beat, as a note, can be an interesting one to figure. One, I mean, we think about it in the, the classic senses of aesthetically pleasing, but here you bring up the idea of it as triumphant or the idea that is revelatory. But I want to throw this out to the two other Herman brothers as well. Can beauty exist in genres like horror? Can it exist in moments where the beauty belies something else or where it is juxtaposed with something other than the sad? Can I ask the really annoying philosopher question? Oh, dear God. Uh, only if we get to choke you afterwards. Okay, what is beauty? Okay, I'm beauty is truth. on my way to Missouri. Truth is beauty. Unless it makes people uncomfortable, sir. <laughs> In which case it leads to sadness and disappointment. <laughs> which is actually not direct quote, but close enough from The Secret War of Lisa Simpson, we have come full circle. <laughs> as poetry specifically we're talking about. Okay, so long as we're using beauty as a term, we all basically know what it means, even if we can't define it. Yes, okay, sure. No, no, if you want to toss out an operational definition, I will not murder you. The problem is that you... The problem is I don't have one. Yeah. Good, yeah. I was, I was going to say, I mean, I was going to go back to Fantasia for a moment, which isn't horror, but I was going to go to the the Hall of the Mountain King, which is mm. a short, not a movie, so the devil doesn't count. David knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is that, is in the Hall of the Mountain King... Uh, I mean, Wagner, it's this truly, I mean, it's a horrific piece of music. Like, there is definitely evil about and present when you hear that song. And, but at the same time, I don't know, there's sort of, you know, Wagner's, you know, majestic nature in general, that this is just an amazingly kind of epic piece of music, that there can be, you know, beauty from the horror. I mean, or if you even want to go slightly more esoteric and go, uh, Frankenstein, life came from madness, you know, and it's a cursed life and a tragic life. But he's but named like, Adam. He is specifically named after mythologically and yes. the first man in that sense of try and that as the monster, his role is to try attempting is attempting to apply reason, attempting to apply what were considered the pinnacles of human faculty at the time to make sense of that madness and to make a better life from it. Yeah. I mean, in the Hall of the Mountain King, would you say the beauty there is alien or otherworldly? Is uh, it, yeah, I would definitely say otherworldly. Like, is it the classic version of the Fae in that sense? Uh, yeah, actually, when you guys were talking about, and uh, not to bring back Miyazaki, but uh, Spirit <laughs> of the Way, when yeah. you were talking, like, the, the old lady just definitely reminds me of the Fae a lot. Like, when you're talking about the spirit, you know, so, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Yubaba, the, the uh, yes. yes, definitely her and her sister, because they are creatures of whim. Oh yeah, oh no! I, it, it reminds me of it reminds me of uh, Jim Butcher's Dresden series and yeah. the the mother of winter and the mother of summer. I find that when beauty is done right, sorry, not beauty, horror is done right. We find the beauty in responses to horror. Um, so often mm. we can find the worst things about humanity in responses to horror. But I'm I'm thinking of there's an iconic scene from the thing, which if anybody knows anything about me, uh, I absolutely despise. But the thing has this very iconic scene at the very end where spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the thing in the past 35 years. Or cares. Uh, or cares. <laughs> um, 
Look, so there's a scene at the very end where the two remaining humans, allegedly, are sitting out in front of the blown-up building. And they recognize this sort of, either one of them could be the thing, right? Because the thing is something that infects humans and looks exactly like them. So either Mm -hmm. one of them could be the thing. And they're sitting there between the two of them and the the burning wreckage outside. And there's a a bottle of, I, uh, I presume, whiskey that one of them is drinking. I, I think it's I think it's the main character, um, Kurt Russell. And he passes it to the other person who takes a swig of it, and then he takes a swig of it. There's sort of this sort of very fundamental connection that we require as humans, right? That at the end of the day, I still can't bring myself to see you as something other than a human because we're that closely connected. And I think, like, in a way, that's one of the more beautiful scenes in horror, that the horror, that, that is as as awful as the whole experience has been as, as betraying of all of your trust, you know, it's the thing starts with like betraying your trust of your you know man's best friend. And then it moves on to other people. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we need those connections, right? That those connections are a part of us and that we can't give them up. Even if we are so scared of the fact they might not be there. And I think that actually is really beautiful. There's a, are all of you familiar with Rappuccini's daughter by Hawthorne? I am not. Oh, uh, okay. Stephen, you would probably like the book because the, it's a short story, I think about 20 pages. The premise is this young Italian man, a scholar, decides to travel to the University of Padua. And there is told by his landlady that there is a beautiful garden full of these magnificent flowers raised by a Dr. Rappuccini. He leans over one day to look and discovers these are magnificent flowers, the likes of which he's never seen. In a way, they're almost surreal and decides to talk to a professor at the university about this, who tells him the nature of Rappuccini is this man who is devoted first and foremost to science. I forget. There's a number of lines in it, which I would have to dig through 20 pages to pull out. But among them, I think, are lines such as a man who is willing to put his own heart in a lambic if he would get even one mustard grain more of knowledge out of that. All of these plants, though, the professor says, are poisonous. Deadly so. It's the reason the Dr. Rappuccini is no longer at the university. While he may derive occasional miracle cures, panaceas, most of his work will murder people. He's just too focused on creating it to bother doing so. That's not what's beautiful in a sense about this. The second or third day in, the guy leans over his pad, leans over his balcony and spots in Beatrice, Dr. Rappuccini's daughter, and immediately is smitten, is aware that he is entranced as such and throws flowers to her. They wilt. The bugs flying around her die. The insect that is dripped on by the flower she plucks drops dead. All of these build up to the hint that this is something infinitely fatal and wrong about this garden. And in fact, he's even told by his professor, do not involve yourself. The doctor is dis- has chosen you as an experiment. If you stay here, you will have no escape. Of course, then the narrator goes into this little side about how the professor is a little biased because he and Dr. Rappuccini have a conflict of interest and reputation of which Rappuccini is definitely in the the heads. And if you wish to look further, the annals of the university could certainly prove this. Which is an odd thing for Hawthorne's time to have that full narrator aside. But it's necessary. The thing is, as the story progresses, and he eventually sidelines the professor altogether, he tries to convince Beatrice that there is a way to leave this, a way to escape this garden that she's spent her whole life. Eventually, the professor, in one last desperate attempt to help, gives the young man an antidote. Mind you, Beatrice at this point has confessed that she was born and raised with the most beautiful and deadly of flowers in the garden. They are like sisters and described as such repeatedly throughout the story. When the confrontation occurs and the young man shares the antidote with her, she is undone. She dies before her father, who is not 
upset, but rather is described as pleased in extending his hands over both of them, as if to condone this matrimony of sorts. There's something incredibly fae-like in his application of reason over all, and what he will sacrifice for it in the advancement of science. It's the trope of mad scientist will before we see it now. But there is the line, for as the poison was her life, so the antidote was her death. Where again, you go back to that fundamental, the moment he has handed the antidote, you know things will go a certain way, the beauty will die. And the man, Dave, to your point, is forever changed because, as the doctor says, I have made you forever able to undo your foes with a breath. No one can stand against you. You are rejected by the world, but it matters not because you have each other. And then, of course, she dies to the antidote, her salvation in the mind of the young man. And I think that actually brings up what the uh, one of the primary places of beauty and horror is, and uh, that is to be violated. To go with an example that a lot of people have seen, but maybe not have actually seen the scene in question, because it was one of the ones cut from the theatrical release. One of the only scenes in a horror movie that's ever actually spooked me, frightened me, whatever, came in The Exorcist. And, and it was precisely because, maybe it's not beauty in the classic sense, but it, it is in the sense of this movie. Uh, throughout the movie, more and more of the world around the main characters is violated. Uh, as this possession spreads, as this demon takes hold and corrupts everything around, he slowly takes normal life away from from everyone. I mean, so dinner parties are interrupted by the girl misbehaving and peeing on the floor. And I forget what some of the other things that are taken away of outside help is taken away from the way she reacts to the doctors, etc. But there is one room that always remains a sanctuary, and it is the bottom of the stairs. Whenever, even after they've started trying to confront her in her room, the center of her power, or the demon's power, I should say, that space at the bottom of the stairs remains their place of refuge. When things get too much, they retreat there. Uh, where everything else is noise, this is silence, this is solace. And then in the deleted scenes, as they're trying to figure out what to do next and gearing themselves to go back up and confront her, this strange shape comes tearing down the, sp the stairs at about the speed of a dog running down the stairs. And you realize with horror that it's this girl running down the stairs on her fingertips and toe tips with her back to the floor. So just like crab walking, but on her fingertips arched over her head, she comes barreling down the stairs and throws blood up on the floor. And their last place of refuge is taken away. And that is the place of one of the primary places of beauty and horror is to be removed and, and to have that safety and that peace denied. This isn't horror, but I think it fits in the sense of violation. And this is a bit older. It's a piece from Virginia Woolf's Till the Lighthouse, early on. But I know, Stephen, if you wish to plug your ears, you're welcome to do so now. Ah, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh. Can we ban him now? <laughs> <laughs> he's gone. I was going to ask Dave to read this, but unfortunately, he's been sent to the Bizarro Realm. <laughs> unfortunately, I will have to pull him back briefly, if only to read this piece, starting from It Was His Fate, down to this line here. It was his fate, his peculiarity whether he wished it or not, to come out thus on a spit of land which the sea is slowly eating away, and there is to stand, like a desolate seabird, alone. It was his power, his gift, 
suddenly to shed all superfluities, to shrink and diminish so that he looked barer and felt barer, even physically, yet lost none of his intensity of mind, and so to stand on his little ledge facing the dark of human ignorance. How we know nothing, and the sea eats away the ground we stand on. That was his fate, his gift. But having thrown away, when he dismounted, all gestures and fripperies, all trophies of nuts and roses, and shrunk so that not only fame, but even his own name was forgotten by him. He kept even in that desolation a vigilance, which spared no phantom and luxuriated in no vision. And it was in this guise that he inspired in William Banks, intermittently, and in Charles Tansley, obsequiously, and in his wife now, when she looked up and saw him standing at the edge of the lawn, profoundly reverence and pity and gratitude too, as a stake driven into the bed of a channel upon which the gulls perch and the waves beat, inspires in merry boatloads a feeling of gratitude for the duty it is taking upon itself of marking the channel out there in the floods alone. But the father of eight children has no choice. I was given that book in my second year of life as a grad student at USC in a short tenure in a novel structure class. I left it because the faculty was more interested in talking about the non-existence of wolves. I won't name names, but that should explain why I left. It's taken me forever to read the book, but when I came upon that scene, I thought about it for a while because it starts out in his point of view in a respect to him and slowly eats away at everything he's standing on. Down to that, truly, I don't know how to describe it. It's beautiful. It is weird. It is mocking. And it was not a scene I expected to encounter. I do think, though, we've been picking at other people's writing long enough. I did promise, we did promise, at the very top of this show, that we would make an attempt at sharing a story of our own creation, live, with blood and appropriate sacrifices if necessary. Are all of you still game? I am totally game for this. Good, because we have made no rules, we have laid no terms, there is only, with apologies to Hideo Kojima, the premise. I have given the title as such, Death Leaves Us Stranded. The premise, eccentric video game designer, promises new form of entertainment where players will connect with each other using strands. Anything goes here, and whether they live or die by such strands, well, we'll find out. What they are, how, who wants to go first, and where do we start? Well, we start by tossing out paper cups and string, because that's just ridiculous. (laughs) You know, if this actually required people to have the paper cup phones... So, you know, I got in the mail the other day Okay. a piece of string. Really? I was told nothing about it besides the the word next to uh, the word in the packaging, Kojima Productions. It reminded me a lot of Stefan Molyneux. Not Stefan Molyneux. What am I doing? Peter Molyneux. Um, (laughs) Did you just create your own clone of Molyneux named (laughs) after yourself? You have given birth to your own demiurge. What's going on here? I don't even know what the terrible what? thing is I received a piece of string, too, but it was labeled Simpsons Individual Flood Preventers. <laughs> it's not the same string, then. I was promised that if I plugged it into the right power source, I would change the fate of the universe as I knew it. Did it tell you, was there a manual to define the power source? Did it say which kind, AC, DC, solar? Uh, I, I, consider, I thought it was Guns and Roses, but, you know. That would be spectacular. <laughs> so he's since then been hunting down artists and uh, bands and really any kind of creator trying to plug this string to them or into them. Is it in you? Really, that's to be determined. Is it in you now? I mean, is it, a, is it a shunt? Is it the classic in the base of the neck? How does this work? So what I was thinking was that 
maybe, I mean, first I tried swallowing it, but that didn't work out very well. I had to get surgery to get it out of me, you know? And then afterwards I tried different kinds of things. You know, I tried to get, you know, you know, some sort of implant to be able to put it into me. Matrix style, loving me as a battery or something like that. Tom, were you aware that Stephen had been doing this in his off hours? Yes, sadly I was. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to stop him, but... So it seems to me that we're looking at some sort of augmented reality game involving a piece of string. Now, we're talking about an actual piece of yarn. Yeah, no, no, it's nothing special. It's literally made from, like, the normal, like, if you went to a craft store and bought a piece of yarn, that's what you're looking at here. You know, when I was a much younger individual in high school, I had a forensics teacher who belonged to something called the Little Old Ladies Terrorist Society. They put together quilts, knitting, and blankets. (laughs) And talked about how to create bombs and <laughs> havoc. I thought that was a joke, but she did live on a farm further up and would have had plenty of opportunity to provide yarn and thread aplenty. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, let's take this on to another level. Let's take this on to the next level. So, skipping out of the, the first person narrative that Stephen's been going on, let's say that the next step that happens is someone realizes that they can connect this string between themselves and another person. And now there is this seen or unseen by most people, I don't know, connection. Wherever they go, they stretch this string between the two of them. I think you should pay to see it. That would actually make a lot of sense. But they still have the string left over. They can attach them to more. And so as they go around trying to figure out what this is supposed to accomplish, they're creating this, this mandala of string of partially seen connections stretching across however far these people have gone, slowly stretching around the world. How then does death leave you stranded? Are you... Wait, Stephen, you're not dead yet, are you? Well, last time I checked, I wasn't, but I could just be some sort of weird ethereal ghost talking to you right now. Or, wait, true, you are just a voiceover device. How do we know he hasn't put... I'm the ghost in the machine, guys! It's needlepoint. So we've got this bizarre hypnotic mandala, but it, it, it seems to be... At first, it's doing good things for people. Good things are coming out of this. Serendipity happens. People find things they, they, they thought lost. People find opportunity they thought they would never get. This connection to the world around them is, in fact, benefiting them. It is, it is making the world a better place. When do we encounter the man who started it? Or do we ever find a patient zero, the one who first has the strand? You mean it wasn't Dr. Keku? the person who first had the strand. You know that's quite possible, but you don't have a body anymore. So you're everywhere. So yeah, there's, there's, there's I no, am the thing that connects us you're, all. You're so there's no theory the about machine. this string? Oh, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> that was truly atrocious. Wasn't and, it, though? But the string comes, but being part of this network comes at a cost. Yeah, I think a it's very a, real cost. Go for it. I don't know, come up with something. Tom, it's your turn. I just made horrible jokes. Um, I think that's where the humor is coming in as a beat. It's not, it's not in the story. It's us. Well, uh, okay. clearly, well, the people who haven't experienced this yet will be mocking it. So, so, so with the benefit of serendipity and, and new opportunities found uh, comes, comes an, uh, uh, an unbe- uh, unbeknownst side effect of strange and bizarre dreams. But they're not just typical dreams of, you know, the things that leave you waking and sweating and in your bed, but these seem altogether more real. Pain, pain follows, and marks on marks on skin that were not there when when users went to sleep. 
and side and side effects ensued. People were became concerned, but could not stop using the string. Stephen, since you're now just the voice in the machine, do you still feel something like an umbilical cord attached to you? Is there something grounding or anchoring you? Well, it's all of humanity, right? So, like, I, I feel see. connected to everybody else, and that's the thing that holds me here. As how, to- how do they appear to you? Do they also seem like individuals in a place? Uh, no, I feel they, the, the sensation is most like feeling tied down, right? Mm-hmm. So I almost feel as if every person is tying me down with, you know, like a string. And slowly across the land, people are disappearing. Occasionally, you will just see a couple of strands of string free-floating in like an alley or in the square or something like that. You were the first, but well, others are clearly joining he, you. Clearly he unraveled. And then, and then a town goes dark. And keep in mind that a lot of people aren't even aware that they're not even seeing. They're either not paying for it, they're not connected, or they were connected unknowingly. They're not seeing their their connection to this. So when a town goes dark, that's the first that the world really takes notice of this uh, mandala of connection. Why why mandala, though? It's this ever-shifting pattern. It's almost hypnotic. And for whatever reason, despite all of the chaotic motion of people, the mandala itself remains symmetrical. Are we being woven? I think so. Well, that does beg the question, whom? And unfortunately, as television hosts, we don't have much control for that. No, indeed. The networks will uh, actually tell Lynch that he has to uh, reveal who the killer was and the show will die. Oh, I thought they were just going to put it on Friday nights on date night and just you, kill it after you one You know, season. it's funny because I stumbled upon Lynch and he was missing a few limbs the other day. Hmm. Yes, apparently he was only partly woven in. Maybe the creators of stories have too powerful an imagination in their own right and cannot be fully incorporated. No, you know what this is. It's not just that they have the power. They don't have the mind for it. What, what does every amateur writer do with characters once they're done with them? Kill them, Kill them off. Or throw them away. So what you're saying is David Lynch is a too good a writer to do, to do this? So. What I'm saying, Stephen, is you've been written out. Death has left you stranded. Oh, you realize... <laughs> oh, God, you realize what this means. What? Time well, what's, what's one of the pieces of advice they to give to people in, in creative writing courses? They say, look at the Death world around you. Okay? Time is but a window. I shall return again. No, that's Vigo the Carpathian. <laughs> Uh, they, they, say, that messed up. They, they, they say, look around you. Yes. Keep, pay attention to the people around you. Write about what you, know. what you know. Death has been studying regular people and incorporating them into his stories. Death, death, death is to know everyone. Death is taking a creative writing course. Good Lord, who's the teacher? Yes, but the benefit is, is he's been horrible at his endgame. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't uh, found a way around it yet. Uh, Death is death is extremely worried that his screenplays are going to get rejected by the studios. But thus far, he hasn't ma- managed to actually get any of the uh, um, a- any of the executives enwrapped in this mesh. Because just as people who have too much imagination can't be pulled in, people with no imagination can't be pulled in either. Well, I think the studio executive replied, "You have to write yourself out of the story." Does pose him a problem too? They tend to see most of his characters as self inserts. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. So, folks, we, we are petitioning to you today. We need to advise Death on how to do this properly. After all, if he never finishes the story, chances are we might all disappear. Then again, if Death doesn't, never finishes the story, chances are we might still also go on. No, no I think the real, the real threat is if, if uh, Death does finish the story before he learns how to write well, we're definitely all going to disappear. That's true. Guys, I'm going to start a GoFundMe page. I need you to help me fund getting Death writing classes. Or no, why don't we just 
crowdsource the actual writing. He can upload it. We'll all put our comments on. I mean, he's probably a little sensitive about, you know. Make sure he can't keep the internet raise. trolls at bay. Oh, God, the trolls will kill us all. Oh, you realize that, that if, if going back to video games, this is a final boss scene where a gestalt <laughs> creature made up of internet trolls squares off against death in a giant kaiju battle in a digital city. Stephen, I hate to say it, but you are the seed of the, you are the seed and germ of that city. You are the lowest. I, I love this. So I'm like the I'm like the spirit inside the Ava unit. You must reboot it quickly before death finds a way out. Don't worry, I'll fill it with LCL fluid. Oh, <laughs> Dom, you've been witness to this all. Do you have any last words? Your last words better be why. <laughs> no, no. Uh, all I have to say, I felt like making a really bad, like, bogus journey reference here and, like, going, they melvined me. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I got, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm just, well, I mean, I, I'm just witness to this. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out if death taking out on internet trolls is, is just strange or if it is, in fact, a thing of perfection and beauty. I think death is the thing that can defeat trolls. Because death, death is cessation. Death comes to dinner. I, I almost wish I'd been given time to talk about like one of my big things for the, the four beats, because death ends up playing as a major character. But uh, throw it in now. I think this is where you teach death how to write about himself properly, by giving him an example. So there's a, there's a uh, webcomic that I stumbled upon ooh, about ten years ago called uh, Anywhere But Here, written by uh, Jason Siebels. And one of the characters that uh, the main character basically starts with this glorious future in front of him. He's about to head to Berkeley college in Boston to uh, train as a trumpetist and become a world-class jazz musician. And all of that comes, you know, screeching to a halt. And basically when he finds out he can't go and uh, I do recommend reading it, he basically endeavors to try and end his life initially. And as he's going through, like he basically, because he can't commit suicide, everything he tries fails. He decides to take up smoking. <laughs> and uh, but as he takes up smoking, as he's walking along, he comes upon a table with a game of chess, a la Seventh Seal. And standing, sitting on the other side of the table is Death. And he starts playing. And in the next comic, you know, uh, he goes checkmate. And so somebody goes, cigarettes? You're smoking? Aren't you worried about those killing you? I said, no, those will kill you. I said, not unless death works on his end game. <laughs> and but it's kind of it's kind of interesting because you think, oh, this is just a passing aside, but death keeps returning. Like, and to a point where it never bothers him that death is around, but it bothers him when other people see death and aren't bothered by it. Like death shows up at a hospital and the, he looks at the doctor going, This is death. Does this not bother you? Oh, he's here all the time. In fact, some people see him more than they're attending, <laughs> which is sad and funny at the same time. Like, <laughs> like your silence makes it seem more sad than funny. <laughs> no, it is. It's just the kind of funny where you sit and quietly laugh and not sure if you're supposed to share that with others. <laughs> I, I, I think the ending, by the way, to our, our story, Death Leaves Us Stranded, then would have to be this entire story that's just happened Death is presenting to a panel, uh, let's say, um, I, I've got two people, uh, sure. Stanley Kubrick and Ray Bradbury, and he's asking them for their opinion. <laughs> I was thinking we should get, um, oh, what's his name? Who's the guy famous for the twist? Uh, Shyamalan. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. and I just have a lot of people like, they're, they're doing this wrong. There's no twist at the end. I was going for great creative minds who were dead, but, you know, I, I guess maybe... You fail on both accounts. Both <laughs> that we wish for. Not to Bradbury and Kubrick, mind you, the latter of the three last of... Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And uh, I probably should end on the final line. Eh, it's getting better. <laughs> it's like a meta narrative. The framing device is him taking his, his thing, and then this is the this story is the is the thing, but it's also affecting the world. So yeah. that's the framing device. And yeah. the manuscript, and the man, and we'll pan out from the camera with the manuscript, and it's a handwritten series of notebook paper tied together with yarn. Yes, I love it. All framed in a webcomic. <laughs> All framed in a webcomic. I want to write this webcomic now. <laughs> Hell, I, the, yeah, any beats I, we think we need to add into that story to uh, to um, we need a little more beauty I think there needs to be at least one moment of poignancy or beauty there Jeff realizes he's not a good writer okay I, no, 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 I do have to go the internet trolls are slain and for one brief moment there is nothing but constructive criticism where am I fit in this picture Steven, oh, you're, you're gone by that the point world, you, you, were, you were the locus of this remember you housed all of it you are in fact you are in fact the story. Oh, that's great. I like this. Every story needs a starting point. Mm-hmm. You know what they say, all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. So all stories are footnotes to me. Which is why death had to kill you down the story. Exactly. But he killed you in the first act. No, he transcended. I uh, uh, yes. I don't die until death kills me. In a sense, death left him stranded. Oh, okay. So the final scene after that, 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 that constructive criti- no, no. So the final scene after that constructive criticism is Death writes the perfect story, and he realizes if he ever publishes, no one will ever be able to write again. And so sadly, they can live, but they can never truly live. So sadly, he throws it in the fire and watches it as it burns. And then we cut to the panel where he's handed yes. the script over to people. Ah, it's getting better. Give it some time. <laughs> so there you go. So now we are only living until the moment death inevitably gives up. You know, to tie this full circle as I lose my headpiece once again, I forget which Native American tribe this is a story out of, and I regret that, but it is a narrative that has stuck with me. There is one version of How the World Will End in which there is an old woman knitting a blanket, and sitting next to her is an ancient dog. And as she knits the blanket, the dog pulls at the blanket and unravels it, and they are forever in this tug and toll of one unraveling and one knitting. The world will end the day the dog stops, or the day the woman does. <laughs> All right. Um, I believe both of my brothers at this point have to run. So. I do think we should finish up. Before we do, I would like to thank all three of you and make sure we announce the second half of this, because this is only the beginning of Awful Things. We are taking this show on the road to the Geekly Oddcast. Indeed, because, you know, absolutely, if uh, we're going to appear here, we got to get something out of the deal, too. So the plan is we are going to be throwing a special version of the Geekly Oddcast where we uh, challenge certain of our regular members, which may include us, to come up to write a brief story that includes uh, using to come up with an example of the, the four beats in action and to write the uh, potential story, not the whole thing, but a pitch that would use the four beats. And we will have a panel of judges that decide between them. Yep, and we will award both the creator of the stories they have brought with them as well as an appropriate reward for those who come up with new. I believe it was phrased as the Brothers Herman will create something out of it. Maybe. <laughs> yes, there was an asterisk followed by 12 caveats. 12 caveats. Yeah, it might It might just be a fake movie trailer. As I, I, I'm actually made, pitching... Made with uh, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> pitching for an opera 
where we just sing the story as it was told to us, like just word for word. We'll yes. go, and then this happens. <laughs> I'm on board with this, Tom. Are you oh, okay with this? I think we uh, have a war. Nobody, I, I yeah, I'm no, nobody tell the competitors. No, this is mom judges panel only. Stephen, you can't know because you're not on the panel. That's true. I'm not. I'm one of the contestants. Perfect. Very well, then. Before we go and let you all run away, can you let us know where to find you online? You can find us at uh, brothersherman.dudeletter.com or youtube.com slash thebrothersherman. We do interesting web videos and blogs. And, of course, we do the Geekly Oddcast, which you can find on iTunes. And what's the... uh, you can find us on iTunes, Google, uh, Google Play, and uh, Podbean. All you right. Stuff on Podcast Addict. That works too. Yes. So that uh, that means that I am Ramnesis. I'm Albatross. I'm Snake Eyes. And we are the Brothers Herman. I'm your host, Jared Surf, and this was In Character, the show where we share your stories and the moments that matter. I'll keep you informed as to where you can find the Cleodcast version of this coming soon. If you have any of your other stories you'd like to share or things you find fascinating that you want other people to know, you can write it at any time to my name, first dot last at gmail.com. Eventually, so I'll get around to a podcast one, but for now, you can stop. If you like there. what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Diaries. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us at my name, dot my last, and you me tires. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.